Welcome back to the Vatican Briefing, National Catholic Reporters podcast covering Pope Francis, the Catholic Church's other key decision makers, and the discussions impacting the very future of the global institution. I'm Joshua McElwee, the Reporters News Editor. And hello, I'm Christopher White, the Reporters Vatican Correspondent. Thanks for bearing with us as Chris and I took an extended break after all the coverage of the October Synod of Bishops. We're going to have a couple of special episodes in your feeds this month before returning to a more normal release schedule in 2024. Later in this show, we'll be joined by Bishop Daniel Flores the leader of the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas, and the lead coordinator of the U.S. Bishops' National Consultation Process for Pope Francis' Synod of Bishops. I spoke with Bishop Flores during the U.S. Bishops' annual fall assembly in Baltimore in November. He offered, I think, some interesting insights about what it was like behind the closed doors of the Synod Assembly. But before we get to that interview with Bishop Flores, let's talk a bit about this week. Chris, it's been a lot. You were set to go to Dubai this week with Pope Francis. We're talking on Wednesday, November 29th. Yesterday, the Vatican announced the Pope would not be able to make that trip to the UN Climate Change Conference because of health issues. Can you talk a bit about what happened and what the news is? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise because just yesterday, around noontime, the Vatican held a briefing for the reporters that were traveling with the Pope. You know, there's a lot of anticipation for this trip. He was going to become the first Pope to ever address this sort of high-level UN climate summit. Obviously, this is an issue he's cared deeply about since the beginning of his pontificate. 2015, he released the encyclical Laudate Si in the lead up to the Paris climate meeting in 2015, trying to, to build up support for that. So this is another effort by the Pope to really galvanize world leaders, and he wanted to make this trip. But unfortunately, we, we saw this beginning at the end of last week, the Pope first canceling appointments, eventually getting some tests done, and then last Sunday telling the world effectively that he was experiencing an inflammation of his lungs and was really having to lighten the load. But he wanted to make this trip. Even last Sunday, he said he intended to go to Dubai. But what we've seen in the few public statements from the Pope in the past few days is that he really is struggling to speak. There's a great deal of congestion due to respiratory issues at the moment. And if the whole purpose of this trip was to go to Dubai and make this big speech, and he couldn't do so without a voice, the trip would be rather futile, it seemed. Yeah, it's quite interesting. It's the first time I think we've seen this Pope cancel a trip abroad. There have been previous instances where he's had to postpone trips and make them later. Other instances where trips that had been in the early planning stages were then decided that it wouldn't be worth it or that other things needed to be done. But this trip was announced. It was within days from happening. You know, you in the Papal Press Corps, I've had this experience. You know, you paid for the ticket. You were about to go pick up your tickets. I think two days after the announcement was made, it was canceled. It's quite extraordinary. It is. And, you know, one important note of clarification for our readers is that, you know, the Vatican will still be present at the COP Climate Summit. The Holy See will have a delegation there. We will have coverage of it. And we're not sure how the Pope will be participating at the time of recording. You know, the Vatican has only said that they're looking for concrete ways in which the Pope can participate. So, you know, alongside our colleagues at EarthBeat, we will be giving this conference, you know, an incredible amount of attention uh, because, of course, it is one of the top issues for this papacy. But it does sort of limit the Pope's ability to sort of be there and issue this clarion call that I think he really wants to deliver to really push for greater multilateral action in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. That's a very good point. Listeners can be assured that we will be covering the COP28 Climate Summit, even though the Pope is not going. You, Chris, and our environmental correspondent, Brian Rowey, will be offering coverage at EarthBeat, and you can find that at ncronline.org. Be sure to want to look out for that. 
Chris, do you want to talk a bit more about the Pope's health? I know today on Wednesday, the Pope was able to hold his general weekly audience, but then did not actually give the text of the speech. I had an aide read that. What more are we knowing? And what, as a Vatican correspondent there in Rome, what will you be looking to see in, in coming days in terms of how the Pope is doing? You know, it's this sort of strange scenario where even though we know the Pope has been unwell for about a week now, he's still keeping up a number of meetings. We saw him at the beginning of the week meet with the president of Paraguay. He's met with all the Spanish Catholic bishops. We called called into town for the special meeting about just the various issues and challenges facing the Spanish church today. And he continued with his general audience today. And, you know, it it felt like a a normal general audience uh, as these things go. They all last, you know, just under an hour. They're the the scripture reading. There were even some circus performers, as the Vatican loves to to roll out on a (laughs) a number of occasions, it seems. But the Pope himself couldn't say much. He said, if I spoke, it wouldn't sound pretty right now. I'm still not feeling well. I think it was a sign that he wanted to be there to show people that he is out and about and moving, but that his voice appears to be the major issue right now. I mean, I think what I'll be looking for is, you know, when's the next time we see the Pope actually giving a prepared address and how long will it be before he can make it through it? Uh, You know, this is a busy, busy season coming up with Advent. Uh, He's got a stacked calendar next week. Uh, The Immaculate Conception, of course, is a big day here in Italy. He'll have things in his own calendar that day. You know, what will the Pope be able to do? What will he not be able to do? You know, how quickly can he recover from this? That's the question on on all of our minds. And again, watch out at ncronline.org for our coverage. But talking about busy schedules, you were getting ready to go to Dubai, but you had just been for three weeks in Australia on a series of giving lectures on a speaking tour. Would you like to talk a bit about that for our listeners? What were you talking about and what was it like? Yeah, and in fact, I was just in Dubai for a few hours over the weekend changing planes, so I was (laughs) preparing to turn around and head back there this week with the Pope. I was privileged to go and spend a few weeks in Australia to give some lectures on the Synod. There's uh, a lecture series in Australia, the Helda Kamara lecture series that's been going on for a few decades now. Helda Kamara is the, you know, longtime Brazilian bishop that's inspired this lecture series in Australia. Kamara had participated in the Second Vatican Council, been a big advocate for liberation theology, and, and really valued so many of the ideals of the Second Vatican Council, including synodality. And so it was, it was special to be able to travel there and give these talks just after the Synod to sort of help make sense of what happened here in Rome. So I was in Sydney and Melbourne. And Australia really, in their own unique way, they had 13 people here in Rome at the Synod. They were, by my count, the third largest delegation. And I think that was because their plenary council a few years back really was instrumental in informing the Vatican Synod office in how they wanted to shape and plan the Synod itself. And so to be able to go there and understand that on a local level was quite special for me. I was also able to do a few interviews, including one we already have up at NCR Online with Bishop Vincent Long of the Parramatta Diocese in the western suburbs of Sydney, who I think is just an interesting figure in the Catholic landscape today. And Josh, you yourself have been on the road as well. So we've both been, for better or worse, doing our part to unfortunately increase our our carbon footprint. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I had traveled to San Francisco to give a talk about the Synod at St. Ignatius Loyola Parish in, in downtown San Francisco. It was a really edifying experience. We had a good talk together with the members of the parish. I was able to actually highlight the voices of some of the members from inside the Synod that we featured here on the Vatican Briefing podcast during the four weeks of the event. I really enjoyed being with those parishioners, and I hope 
hope we have some new listeners now to the Vatican Briefing Podcast, and I say hello to you, and, and thank you for welcoming me, and, and wonderful to be with you. I had also been earlier in Baltimore for the annual assembly of the U.S. Bishops Conference in earlier November, at which point I, I spoke to Bishop Flores. We're going to feature that interview briefly now. I found it pretty interesting to be in Baltimore. It was about two weeks after the closing of the Synod in Rome. Bishop Flores gave a talk to the some 300 bishops present for the meeting about the Synod. So did Bishop Kevin Rhodes, another of the Synod delegates in Rome, one of the U.S. Synod delegates. It was interesting. They gave a pretty general overview of the Synod, very positive, I think. Both of them spoke about things that happened that they were kind of edified by, both spiritually and then also in terms of the process of listening to the needs of Catholics around the world. Also interesting, however, was the conversation on the floor of the U.S. bishops' meeting was not, I wouldn't say it was fulsome. I can't recall any bishop asking any questions of Bishop Flores or Bishop Rhodes about the process or about the Pope's intentions, but it was interesting that there was the conversation. It was also mentioned in the in the opening talk at the conference by the Vatican's ambassador to the U.S., Cardinal Christophe Pierre, who again kind of referenced the Synod and encouraged the bishops to embrace this process, this model that Pope Francis has brought to the Church of having dialogical conversations at every level of the church and then talking about real issues with, as the Pope said, nothing off the table. Yeah, I think there's a contrast from the energy and buzz we felt here in Rome uh, around the Synod for a month to, I'd say, what's, you know, fair to say is a more tepid response felt at the U.S. bishops meeting. Uh, That's certainly a stark contrast from my vantage point. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. Maybe it's time to take a good break. And mentioning the U.S. bishops and Bishop Flores, after the music, we'll be back with our interview with him about the synod process and the U.S. bishops' plans to, in the 10 months now, between the first synod and the second assembly in October 2024. Bishop Flores, thank you so much for joining us today on the Vatican Briefing. Thanks. It's great to be here. I know we're speaking now at the U.S. Bishops' Meeting just about two weeks after the closing of the October 2023 Synod Assembly. If you cast your mind back over the four weeks of discussions, are there two or three things that from the Assembly that really remain with you? What sticks in your mind about the experience? Well, a number of things, but I think one of the things that, that have kind of, has kind of lingered with me is just the experience of hearing so many voices from around the world both bishops and non-bishops, just speaking very sincerely and genuinely about their experience in their local churches, kind of some of the struggles they, they face and how just are trying to, uh, to really find the best way to address these challenges. As a community, sometimes small churches or you know, a minority community of, of Catholics in a particular part of the world, uh, just trying to kind of give a witness and be sincere about it. And I, I just found that very impactful. I just, there were some people that I got to know on a really more profound way than you ordinarily do at meetings. I and mean, we bishops, we go to meetings all the time. But oftentimes you go, you, you're there for a little while, you do kind of what you're going to do, you have a few for and then you leave. There, here we had a chance to kind of like, you know, have several conversations here and listen and then and from a variety of different perspectives. And that was very moving to me and, uh, and very impactful. And I think it really helped to establish sort of the, 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 the ethos of the whole assembly. You know, I, I myself uh, was mostly involved in the English speaking, and there you meet people from all over the world. I mean, many parts of the world use choose English as their second language. So I, I found that very moving. I think also um, prayerfulness of the of the time. I, I don't say this as in any way as a criticism, but it's a very wordy affair because you're thinking, you're talking, you're listening, you're writing down, you're trying to kind of find a way to express things that that can kind of help foment a sense of consensus, of, of common understanding. Um, 
and, and I'm a guy who likes working with words, but there were a lot of words. <laughs> and we had certain moments of silence, which, which kind of broke it up. And that was very helpful. I wonder a lot of the focus at the end of the synod, especially among us in the media, and my apologies there, was on the final document. What it said, what it didn't say, what groups it mentioned, what groups it didn't. Now that we've had a bit more time to digest the text, what is your overall evaluation of what it said or how the assembly kind of decided to present itself at the end of the event? Something we've been working on, I guess, I guess all along, just in terms of every time we met in small groups, we were dealing with certain issues in common and we were discussing them, trying to reach a consensus way to talk about them. And, and so uh, there was a lot of the work that went on that way was kind of preserved in a document that was then sort of used, I think, as part of the work that went into kind of building the, the final document. I think the assembly was fairly happy with the way it worked out in the sense that, that uh, a lot of things were expressed in, in an interim way. Everybody understood it was an interim document, but that's kind of the nature of the, an interim thing. But also when you're looking to help sort of build a consensus to identify what are the issues we need to kind of now go more deeply into going forward. And as long as you identify, there's almost like place markers. Uh, that's the way I kind of took it. I really admire the work that went into uh, trying to kind of put a sense of, of what we say in Spanish, un resumen, a summary, uh, uh, that, that's faithful to it. And, and that's, that was part of the work of the Citadel Assembly, is to kind of attest by their vote that this is pretty faithful to kind of how our conversations went. And, and it's kind of marked sort of the progress, but also kind of where we need to kind of sort of do some work. Uh, in some ways, I think it's very wise. Uh, not, you know, it's only in this case that we have a two-year synod. It's, it's going to involve the same delegates, but it seems very wise because we, we need some time to kind of like go more deeply into what's marked there and have maybe, I would think, across the world in different, you know, dioceses represented there, some more conversations about them, deepen it. I think there's some theological thinking that has to go on, at least initially you know, during this year to kind of help us sort of frame the questions. I, I kind of heard that in the document as kind of a, an element of kind of a, we need to think more about this, but we need to kind of think about it together and, and also think about it in context of our own local communities. I wanted to ask about one particular issue in the document, then, then I'll move on to other things. But I was curious how you evaluated how the document mentioned the, the role of women's leadership in the church. I was struck by the way it it mentioned the church sometimes being an instrument that hurt women with chauvinist or their attitudes. How did you assess how the text talked about women's leadership and even brought up issues such as the ordination of women to the diaconate or, or whatnot? First of all, I think it was fairly re well reflective as to kind of issues that were brought up. There was no one issue that dominated everything. I think there were a number of things that in many ways are somewhat related, I guess, in a, in a broader perspective. I think the document expressed a recognition, honestly, of the voices that have been heard, not just at that assembly, but, you know, in the, in the national and or in the more local things about how the church has not, in her leadership or in, her, in the way it works. And by the church, I mean just the people, because it, it, it is, it's not just the, it's the people, how we've not maybe appreciated the sacrifice and the, the kind of so much has, in so many parts of the world, continues to make the church viable, is the work of women, and to recognize that, uh, to be to express a certain amount of sorrow for how, how that has not been appreciated or even abused, taken advantage of, uh, aprovechado, as we would say. Uh, and then to kind of say, but, but okay, uh, we're an imperfect communion. That's part of the reason we're having the synod is to kind of talk about that. And how can we make it a more perfect communion where we do kind of work more cohesively in a mutual recognition of gifts and also of an ordering of the gifts uh, for the good of all. And that selflessness, because the kenotic sort of element underneath, I think, a lot of that discussion is is we're all going to have to die to ourselves. And, and, and in the sense of kind of 
we need to be less ego, which is a perennial temptation, going back to Adam, I'm sure, and, and the first sin. But so, but that's the Christian call. And, and that's the way out of humility, you recognize the gifts of others. I must decrease, others must increase. And I think that's a spirit you want to kind of then use to kind of help understand how do we, how do we make a work, the mission, the uniqueness of what in different parts of the world that women bring to the life of the church and in leadership. How, how is that recognized and how is it encouraged? That, that's kind of, and, you know, the issues that go along with that, but they're not just one, it, it's, it is an issue of participation. And, and that's kind of the, the link between, you know, mission and communion, because participation is how do you invite people to say, we're kind of all in this together. I think that's the, under, we're kind of all in this together. We need to forgive each other, and we need to then uh, recognize the realities. That's why the local listening is very important, indispensable, and, and, and listening to these voices even here at this table. And I think the conversations were very touching and very sincere. I think, you know, in some sense, it's a reflection already of kind of what the mission is, that we can model to the world, imperfect as we are, that there is, there is a way to relate to each other that's not all about power and all about control. Even the quietness of the whole press aspect, I think, took some of the pressure off. I mean, I, for whatever reasons and whatever people think, but just as an experience, I think we just breathed easier to be able to have these conversations without saying, okay, well, I'm going to quote you, and then you're going to end. Then it becomes sort of a, you know, it's, it's what goes viral and what doesn't. Uh, and that, 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 I really think the Holy Father was very wise. So we, we at least need to pause from that for a while. I wondered, this is kind of an off-the-wall question, but I was thinking that you did your doctoral work on the great Dominican Saint Thomas Aquinas, and I was curious how it was for you then at the Synod to have the retreat led by another Dominican, Timothy Radcliffe, and what was that like for you? It was a beautiful experience, and I appreciated his talks very much. It's the first time actually in my life I'd had a chance to hear him in live. Uh, I've read some of his things. A lot of echoes because he, he was, I could recognize certain elements of, of sort of the Dominican, especially Thomistic sort of way of understanding the body of Christ, which I think is often underestimated in terms of its fruitfulness in the church. But I will tell you, Dominican spirituality has always been something that I've, so when I was working on my doctorate in Rome, when I would really get stuck and needed to go pray I, I, and to kind of help, ask the Lord to help me, I would go to, to the church of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is where Catherine of Siena is buried. Rome has tremendous devotion to Catherine. And as, as a Dominican uh, that she, and, and very courageous, uh, I've always looked to her, and I, I thought of her a lot during the Synod. In my own prayer and meditation, I also thought a lot about uh, contemplative voice of the church, and I kind of sought it out, just a little bit of personal reading and stuff like that. That's something that's also sort of the contemplative life that Catherine of Siena represents that, that can kind of really help us. And I think it's something the Holy Father, when he wrote the letter on Therese of Lisieux in the middle of it, I, I think... For me, that was very important because he had just written sort of Laudate Deo, which I think for the Holy Father is natural. One goes together with the other. I think a lot of in the world will go, that's kind of an unusual juxtaposition, but it's really not if you're looking at it from the higher perspective, the gift of creation, the gift of life, the gift of all of us in the life of the church, the care of creation, the care of one another. Bringing the discussion forward now, now that the 2023 assembly has closed, do you have specific hopes for what might happen in this 10 or 11 month interim before the next assembly? I'm thinking, do you have plans for further consultations in your own diocese? Or as someone involved in the national process, are there plans for more national consultations? Yes, I'm also part of the preparatory commission for that. There's some things that we're hoping that, that we can sort of use as suggestions. So to answer that question, I think, yes, I already have an idea in my own diocese. I think we have a limited amount of time, but there's certain issues that I think that were brought up in the synthesis, interim synthesis report that are particularly relevant to like my diocese. 
in terms of like certain issues of the care for the migrant, which is a very big reality for us, but also other, the elderly. We just, that maybe we could do some focused consultation, just asking, I, I could see it quite easy, for example, and I'm thinking how to do this. Maybe I, I invite a group of, of young adults just to kind of come and talk and do a synodal sort of short to kind of address some of the issues like the digital world, which was kind of a big thing there. And also maybe just the tensions in family. I, there are some things we can do. I think while I'm here at the conference, I think I, I have many bishops ask. So I'm hoping that we can kind of facilitate that, at least from the conference level, to kind of maybe give the bishops some material to, that would help them. You know, the document is very long, and, and we can't talk about everything. But I think we can locally kind of begin, because every, even in the United States, the diocese are different, to kind of look at the issue, issue of women's leadership, issue of participation, issue of the marginalized, that if we could kind of use this time wisely to focus on some, maybe some focused consultations in our own dioceses. I think it's always important for the local church to listen to each other about, but the more specific we can get to get in a prayerful way, sort of the sense of people kind of reflect on that in preparation. I think that's one of the things that we're going to be looking for ways to help make possible here in the United States. And certainly that's what I'm thinking about in my diocese. I know that you have limited time and you probably need to get to the next meeting, but maybe one more question. As we look ahead to the 2024 assembly, as you consider what this assembly was like, was there anything in the process or in the way things happened in Rome that you might suggest could be altered or changes you might see? I mean, not to, not to say you'd give the Pope advice, but... Oh, <laughs> well, well in, 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 in fact, that's what the whole Synod is, is giving the Pope advice. Uh, this was such a new way to do the Synod that I'm, I'm, I'm remarkably impressed with how well it worked. I mean, it's one thing to conceive, okay, this is how the plan is, and it's gonna have, we're going to have f- five language groups, and we're going to have tables in different languages, and we're going to move four days and, and, and to talk to... And it's a lot of moving parts. Uh, it was remarkably well thought out, and the technology was very helpful. But I think the, that we need to think through, we, we found ourselves a little bit short of time. I think maybe we need to kind of maybe figure out how to, because the second session will be a different because we've worked through the first session and maybe that was necessary to have it quite that intense to get to the second session. But I think we need to think about how do we open up some space, I think, for a little bit more time, especially as we go into the second one, because the issues will have been identified that we need to kind of have the conversations to go more deeply, more theologically, more sensitively to kind of the the things that we can actually sort of begin to recommend to the Holy Father. Because synodality is, is ultimately about how do we become the more listening ethos in the church as a whole. And from that, the mission will come. Because if we're hearing the voice of the, of the baptized and how we can better serve the poor, which is a, a, a word that, that can mean many, many things, one of the things the Senate talked about, because it ultimately has to go towards the mission. And the mission is, is impeded when the communion is not as strong as it should be. So I think we can spend maybe a little bit more a reflective time along the way. We met pretty intensely, and that's fine. I know I understand it because it was necessary to kind of be able to cover the topics, but I, th- I think we can afford now to kind of breathe a little bit better as we go forward. Well, thank you so much, and thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing today. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks. We are so grateful that we had the chance to be joined today by Bishop Flores. Chris, I was really struck by his openness about what it was like at the tables, at the synod, the conversations among the bishops and the delegates about some of the hot-button issues we have reported on during the event. Especially, I was struck by how Bishop Flores talked about the issue of women in the church, and even how sometimes people in the room were recognizing that women had been taken advantage of or even abused by church leaders. And just the general sense of the open conversation, things are still kind of continuing, and even among the bishop delegates, they're not quite sure how things will develop between now and the second assembly and where things might go in October 2024. 
one of the things that I was struck by, both listening to the interview with him that you did, and even going back and, and reading his remarks to the bishops, is his desire to bring people along in the journey. To me, it kind of provided a bit of a contrast what we've seen in recent weeks since the Senate ended. You know, we've seen Bishop Robert Barron in the States, Bishop Anthony Fisher in, in Sydney, Bishop John Wilson in, in Southwark, England, release these very long, you know, 10-page, 12-page reflections on the Senate that almost serve as their final synthesis report, eager to sort of draw lines in the sand about particular issues that had been discussed. I think what you get with Bishop Flores is just the desire to appreciate the experience and bring people along, you know, because it's a process that hasn't finished. And I think he's looking ahead, knowing that there's a lot to be done between now and next October, and that this isn't a process that is finished, but much more to come. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap this up. Again, we're so grateful to Bishop Flores for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. Obviously, a lot is happening in these days. The COP28 Climate Summit is about to open as we speak, and we are closely following the Pope's recovery from his health issues this week. Be sure to stay tuned for our reporting at ncronline.org. And thank you so much for joining us on the Vatican Briefing. We should be back in your feeds in a couple of weeks to talk more about other Vatican news, and then we will debut a new regular schedule for our episodes in 2024. You can find our show notes with links relevant to today's discussion at ncronline.org. And please, if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you listen. Until next time, you've been briefed. The Vatican Briefing is a production of National Catholic Reporter. John Grosso is your executive producer. Joshua McAlee and Christopher White are your producers and hosts. The editing was done by Angie Von Slaughter in conjunction with David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Today's music is provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast and NCR's future media initiative are made possible in part by the generosity of Bill and Jean Buchanan.